This morning, from this text, Psalm 13, I want to speak to you about the value of suffering, or alternately titled, How to Grieve. This sermon has been on me for a while, just kind of born out of conversations and um, just interactions with folks that have all seemingly been revolving around suffering and death. Many that are here this morning, uh, you might know, have lost loved ones in recent days, have lost coworkers or friends in very recent weeks. Others are perhaps mourning the idea of their life changing from a dreadful medical diagnosis. But this business of suffering is something that is uniquely human. It has come upon us, and it comes upon us swiftly and impartially and mercilessly. This type of suffering, this type of grieving and sorrow is what afflicts all of us. And seasons like these, to be honest with you, seasons like these when we are confronted with the loss of life or perhaps the terminal diagnosis, uh, I have to be honest with you, they make me kind of feel like my profession is a little bit cheap. And by that I mean just on the most basic human level, a pastor is someone who puts words together to comfort someone or convict someone. Like at the most basic human level, that's what a pastor does. Obviously, there's a lot more that go into that. But it's in moments like these where I realize that sometimes my words aren't very sufficient. (laughs) What What do you say to someone who has lost a loved one? A wife or a mother or a brother or a sister or niece, or what have you. What do you say? What are, what are, what are, what's a word that I can give someone in that moment? In, in times like these, I think words can feel cheap. I know that for me, um, when my mom was going through her uh, terrible season of distress and depression, when it actually looked like we were going to lose my mom to that depression, in moments like those, I didn't want to hear someone tell me Romans 8.28 again. I didn't want them to tell me that. Because I was in that moment, I was grieving and I was sorrowing. You know, that uh, I was, when I was studying, I was reminded of this verse from Job chapter 2. Actually, let me, let me turn there really quick. Uh, just You don't have to turn there. But in Job, you know the story of Job, right? He's this man who has incredible uh, power and prestige and wealth and possessions. And it's all taken away in a matter of moments. And then afterwards, in Job chapter 2, verse 11, his friends are coming, and it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came, every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they wept. And they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. And none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. When I was reading those words, it reminded me of this sort of myth of suffering and sorrow. Which is, sometimes not having an answer is okay. That sometimes, like Job's friends at first, you can just sit in the silence. And sometimes the silence is all that we need. That we don't have to have the right word to say. 
That we don't have to have the right reason and the right logic to point out why such and such thing happened. Because sometimes that doesn't feel very real. So, what do we do with this grief then? What, do we, what should our response be to life's crushing seasons? To life's torrential, stormy moments? When a loved one leaves us or when a friend takes his own life. When a child inexplicably loses their life. What do we do? What do we say? What's our response? I was thinking just recently of that pastor who committed suicide last week. Who took his own life because he was so caught up in his own depression. How do we make sense of that? How do we respond to that? How does his family move on from that? Well, my, my goal, and I will have to confess to you, is that it might be inadequate, but I hope to speak into these questions and these uh, suffering uh, quandaries and not to give you some, any sort of pithy platitude or uh, pithy motivation or anything like that, some cheap motivational speech. I hope to give you some real, honest, tangible hope. Hope that allows you to still mourn, but hope nonetheless. And I think that's exactly what I hope to do, is not to shy away from these things, not to shy away from these conversations. Hope for those who are suffering doesn't exist by denying that that suffering is real, by denying that that grief is something that is real, pretending that it doesn't exist. You can see that throughout the Psalms. Throughout the Psalms, David was never one to shy away from sharing his grief to God. He was open with his soul to his father, his heavenly father. And he always let him know how he felt. I think to hide from that, to pretend that this grief isn't something that is real, is to sort of cease to be human. It's a human thing to grieve. And there's nothing that can prepare you for it. As much as you want to think that you can prepare yourself for the end of someone's life, there's nothing that can prepare you for it. It always is catching us by surprise. Losing a loved one, losing a friend shakes us to our core. And I think that's precisely because death is unnatural. Death is not supposed to be here. Death is not part of God's created order. It is something that is an intrusion. It's an invasion. It's the last enemy of Satan. It's the world's greatest wrong. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that it's the last wrong to be made right. That in the end, Jesus will have victory over death. And it's a reminder that this world is not as it should be. When we lose someone, we're reminded of that enemy that still exists. One preacher, he once said that death itself is the best preacher. It's the best evangelist. Because it's something that everyone has to be uh, confronted with. I would say even more broadly that suffering is the best preacher. Because in some ways, we are all, in a matter of ways, in a matter of speaking, suffering to some degree. And I think it's in those grievous seasons, those the suffering, sorrowing seasons that reveal uh, what is at the core of what we believe. What's, uh, what's at the core of what we believe? 
Suffering will reveal that. It will reveal the object of our trust under the most intense spotlight. It will reveal what we believe truly in our heart of hearts for meaning and purpose and hope and joy. Suffering will always tell you what you rely on. It will always show you what you are trusting in most. So what do we do then with this suffering? I think Psalm 13 has a very powerful message to us. A very powerful sermon for us on the value of suffering. Notice firstly in verses 1 through 4, the voice. The voice of suffering. Look at what he says. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide my face, thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him. And those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. As we said at the beginning, David is not one to diminish his feelings. Here you can see it very clearly. He is expressing exactly how he feels to God. He lets God's know how his uh, feelings are. What they're saying to him. He let God know the deepest emotions of his soul. He's not hiding them. He's not pretending that they don't exist. He's actually giving voice to them. And he's voicing them to his father. God, have you forgotten me? God, have you betrayed me? Have you turned your face away from me? Because right now I feel like I'm alone. God, have you neglected to remember me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long will I be forgotten? Have you ever felt that way? That if you're just praying, it just feels like you're just praying to the four walls. That God has somehow forgotten you in your moment of suffering. David felt the exact same way. Here, especially in this psalm, in another psalm, let me just read it to you. He expresses an incredible darkness of his soul. The darkness that he felt. Psalm 88, he has this incredible confession. He says, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee, incline thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. And then in verse 6 he says, Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. And in verse 18, he says, Lover and friend hast thou put far from me, and mine acquaintance unto darkness. He feels alone. He feels completely disregarded here. And yet, he gives voice to that. He gives voice to those expressions, those feelings of his soul. He's saying, God, it doesn't make sense why I'm feeling this way. But I have to tell you, I feel forgotten. I feel alone. I feel isolated. I feel as if I'm the only one in this pit of darkness. You might have felt this way at some point in your life. Maybe recently or maybe in your past. But let me dispel another myth of suffering to you. It's this idea that expressing, expressing emotion is somehow contradictory to faith. 
That, I think, is completely false. You just have to look at the Psalms and see that he was expressing emotion after emotion, and yet his faith perhaps wasn't gone. He just wanted to be sure it was real. (laughs) God, let me know that you are still there. I am still faithfully trusting in you, but God, right now I feel a little bit forgotten. I don't know where that idea comes from, that, you know, expressing emotion in this certain way is somehow less Christian. You know, being a Christian and putting your faith in Jesus doesn't make you a stoic. It doesn't make you as one who is supposed to pursue life without emotions. Putting your faith in Jesus doesn't uh, give you a force field against, uh, against agony, against suffering, against grief. The gospel is not out to make us emotionless robots. It's actually finding that in those emotions, we remember that we have a Savior who felt those emotions too. In fact, the Bible is brimming, it's full of people who were real and honest and vulnerable with God about their situation. They didn't pretend it didn't exist, they didn't hide their emotions, they expressed them, they voiced them to God. And I would say that voicing your grief to God is not only biblically legitimate, but it's spiritually and emotionally healthy too. You weren't made to keep that grief inside. You weren't made to keep that sorrowing and that suffering in your own soul. Why do you think we are given that petition to cast our cares upon him? Because his back is wide enough to carry all the sorrows of all of his suffering saints. It's big and strong enough for all of your grief and all of the griefs of his children. And you know, just looking at the Psalms specifically, roughly 67 of them are uh, sort of monikered lament Psalms. Psalms of David pouring out his soul to God. Over half of the Psalter is about David suffering and crying out in his suffering. Lamenting to God for his situation. Because of whatever circumstances he was enduring. The Bible gives us ample space to voice our grief. And better yet, it promises that God hears us. That when we voice that grief, God bends his ear and listens. Psalm 66 verse 19 Says this, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. God hears us. He bends his ear and hears those grievous cries of his children. Here, David felt unheard. He said, God, how long will you forget me? How long will you plug your ears and turn a deaf ear to me? I feel forgotten. And though that's not true, David felt that way. You see, suffering is not God's indifference to us. It's not him turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to us. We are encouraged, though, to grieve and to mourn and to give voice to our distress because we are given the assurance, too, from this word that God hears us, that God listens He listens and he acts. He takes action on behalf of those who are crying to him. God wants to hear you. He wants 
to hear your cries of distress and desperation. All of the pain and the scars and the hurts, all of that, he wants to hear it. He felt shaken. He, look at verse, uh, verse number 4. He says, Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved, when I am shaken, when I am just completely stirred in my soul from what I know is true. He wants to know. God wants to know when you feel at your wit's end. Have you ever felt that way? You're at your complete wit's end. God, I have nothing else to trust in or bank on or rely on except for your word. And I don't even know if that right now is what I need. And yet David here is, that's where he is. He's at his wit's end. He says, God, will you forget me forever? You see, your wit's end is exactly where God wants you. It's his specialty to work at your wit's end. He works and shows that he is never, ever going to leave you. And that he will always, always listen. The voice. The voice of your suffering. But look quickly at verses 5 and 6. Because even better. We have the volunteer. The volunteer. Look what he says. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. You know, um, suffering is sort of that thing that binds humans together. In the sense that we all have had moments of suffering and grief. But no one ever grieves and suffers the same way. It's always different. Our experiences, our, our chemical makeup uh, allows us <clears throat> excuse me, to grieve and suffer in different ways. But what David is expressing here, it was though in his circumstances might have been unique, but his emotions were not. What he's expressing, I think, is just the normative human condition. It's a universal trait that we'll oftentimes have seasons of doubt and distress. And I think we can even venture to say that everyone who has ever existed has suffered in some way or another. And there in that you um, are not alone in your suffering. You are not alone in your sorrow. You know, it's that, that, that false truth, that lie that comes to you in your suffering that says, no one has ever felt this way. No one knows what I'm going through. You have a friend in David who does. You have uh, countless uh, saints throughout Christian histories who know what you are going through. But even better yet, you have a volunteer for your suffering. The volunteer is God himself. The volunteer of your suffering is Christ the Lord, the Savior, Christ the Redeemer. In the middle of life's harrowing, difficult seasons, we are made to see that God's hand of mercy has never left us. That God's hand of salvation, as David here is singing unto, has never departed from us. Suffering, I think, unblinds us to see that God has never left us. You know, there's this other myth. The third myth that I was just confronted with when I was studying this. That there's this idea... And I think it's 
thrown out around by believers a lot. That God will never give you more than you can handle. And it sounds good, I think, in some ways. But I would actually say that I don't think that that's true at all. I don't think it's true that God gives you just the limits of what you can handle. And then he says, okay, that's, that's enough. Actually, I think God, I think he gives us way more than we can ever handle. I think he gives us a lot more than we can ever handle on our own. Why? Because he doesn't want us to handle it on our own. He wants us to realize and, that we, and wants us to be inclined to fall on him in every single season of life. If we are able to manage all of those feelings and thoughts and emotions on our own, because we are given just enough that we could handle, there would be no reason that we could fall and cast our cares on him. I think often, God gives us way more than we can handle. A lot more. I think of the lives of men like Joseph, or Jeremiah the prophet, or yes, even Job as we reference. Do you think that that's what he, the limits of what he could handle is losing everything? No, I think that was way more than Job ever calculated. God, this is way more than I could ever, ever imagine losing. I thought about this with my mom. Again, I have to reference what happened to my mom in the season of depression that she went through where she almost took her own life. My mom, who was a faithful, devoted Christian her entire life, who has a devotional life that puts mine to shame. She has read through the Bible more times than I can even remember. And she is a faithful, devoted Christian. And yet now she's going through a suffering season where she doesn't even know what's real and what's not. God, that doesn't make sense. I don't even know how to process that. God was able to bring her through that. God was able to bring her through that season. But I remember in the moment saying that God can give you more than you could handle. I think that's complete hogwash. I think he gives us far more. So that he will be seen as our only, our truest source of hope and relief and comfort. I think that's exactly what David is affirming here. He says, I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Because he knows he's been pushed, perhaps even over the brink, and yet he knows that God is holding him. This is what suffering allows us to see. That God has never left us. Even when we're given more than we can handle, he's never away from us, never far from us. It reveals the clearest picture of who God is. God that is Emmanuel. God with us. It's the most precious name, I think, of God in the scriptures. That he is Emmanuel. God with us. He walks hand in hand with us through life's most intensest seasons. Through life's most intensest griefs. He's there for us. Psalm 46.1 calls him the ever-present help in our trouble. And it's not because he, he walks through the trouble with us because he knows what the trouble feels like. 
You know what volunteer you have? You have a volunteer in your suffering who takes your suffering for you. Who knows in every point, in every way, what that suffering feels like. We have a God who knows what suffering is. Who knows what it means to be betrayed. As it says in Hebrews 4.15. Who was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Or as it says in Isaiah 53. Who was despised and rejected of men. And was acquainted with our grief. That's our God. That's your volunteer in your suffering. In your grief. Uh, We have a volunteer who takes Our grief for us. We have a God. Who understands our agonizing seasons of darkness. Because he endured them for us. In our stead. On our behalf. This is who Jesus is. Our friend in those sorrowing seasons. Who voluntarily takes on those afflictions. Those sorrows. Those griefs. As his own. He takes them for his own. And he sheds tears that mix with our tears. Regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of where we are. We have a God who is Emmanuel. Who is with us. Through the valley of the shadow of death, we have a God who is with us. Through all manner of fire and famine and flood and death and grief and suffering, we have a God who is Emmanuel. God who is with us. Let me read you this verse. Isaiah chapter 43, the first three verses. Give us this incredible promise. Isaiah 43, 1 says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. That's the type of God we have. Who walks with us through those moments. I shared this on Wednesday and it just came to my head again. Um, it, there's, this, there's this movie, right? It's called Iron Man 2. I don't know, expect you have to have seen it. <laughs> because I haven't seen it either. I'm not a big fan of the Marvel superhero movies. But that's okay, we can talk about that later. But Iron Man 2, there's this bad guy, his name is Ivan, and he's fighting with Iron Man. And they end up having this battle, and they end up capturing Ivan. And Ivan says to Iron Man, that if you want to make people disbelieve in God, you have to make them see that God bleed. And they were, he was meaning it as a jab to Iron Man, right? To, because Iron Man at this time in this movie, I guess, has been lofted up as sort of a god. He's a superhero. So if they could just see him bleed, they would cease to believe in him. And I just am confronted by that. Because that's exactly what makes us believe in God. That we have a God who has bled for us. And that is the source of our belief 
That he has come to the cross and he has bled for us, taking on our suffering, on all of our sorrow, all of our grief, all of our sickness and ailments and infirmities onto himself. And he bleeds for us. This is our volunteer. A God who volunteers to suffer in your stead. To, yes, volunteers to bleed in your place. This is the source of what we believe in the gospel. That we have an Emmanuel with us. A God with us. Through cancer, through death, through the breakup of a relationship, through a layoff from a job, through a wreck of cars, through whatever season of life you have, Emmanuel. A God who is with you. You are not alone. You have this volunteer through your suffering. This suffering friend who suffers with you. Who lastly guarantees the third lesson in our text. Which is the victory. The voice. The volunteer. Thirdly the victory. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. What a wonderful words here. David has been moved from uh, voicing his grief to now worshiping this God. Praising him. For the incredible sustenance and salvation that he has been made to feel in the middle of this season of suffering. You know, there's this internet quote that's passed around a lot that just sounds really cool and is shared on all these kinds of pictures and whatnot. And it says, life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass, it's learning how to dance in the rain. And it sounds kind of cute and pithy, but I actually think it's really true. Because especially when you read what David is doing here, he says, I will sing. He's celebrating in a song. He's rejoicing and praising his God. But also, if you look at that word rejoice in verse 5, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. It really comes from a Hebrew word meaning to spin around or go in circles. He's literally singing and dancing in the middle of suffering. Why? Because he knows where his mercy and his salvation comes from. He can sing and dance in the middle of this suffering because he knows that he has a volunteer who has taken that suffering for him. And who is with him in the middle of it. He's singing and rejoicing and dancing, not because he wants to ignore the pain and the tragedy, not to deny its existence or strive to sort of transcend what he feels. It's because he knows that he can voice this grief and God listens. And he knows that this God who is listening has volunteered to take it on himself. And he knows that this God who listens and takes it has guaranteed his victory over it. This is why we can rejoice. We can, as the scriptures say, mourn as those with hope. We as the church are made to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And we grieve not as those without hope, but those with hope. Hope that is real and sure and certain, not because of ourselves, but because of this volunteer who has guaranteed our victory. In his victory. Our hope is found in that person. 
Our hope, your hope in suffering is not an abstract idea, not some sort of ethereal force or mystical thing that you can believe in yourself. Your hope is a living, breathing person who is still living and breathing for you right now. One lecturer back in the 1800s, his name was Richard Trench, and he said this, which I think is incredible. I love this paragraph. He says, the prerogative of our Christian faith, the secret of its strength, is that all which it has, all which it can offer, is laid up in a living person. How vast is the difference between submitting ourselves upon a beating heart, between accepting a system and cleaving to a person. Your faith in the midst of suffering isn't faith in some abstract idea that you're going to overcome. Your faith is a living, beating heart that is living and beating for you right now at this moment. This is why the gospel is so good. Because it doesn't offer these piffy motivational things. It offers a person. At the end of all your suffering, you won't find some force that you've been able to believe in. You will find a face on the other side. And it's the face of Christ. Who looks back at you and says, I know the feelings of your infirmities. Who says to us, I know exactly what you're going through. We cling to a person. He is our voice. He is our volunteer. And he is our victory in the midst of life's most severest trials. He is all of those things to us. The living, breathing redeemer. The one who bled and died for us. Such is what Job's confession was. Job 19 verse 25, he comes and he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He knew He was made to see this God of suffering. What do we do with all these tears and these griefs? We come as a church family and we grieve and mourn and we rejoice with those who are grieving and mourning and rejoicing. We don't suppress those emotions, we give voice to them. We cry, we weep, we pray. And we do so because we know that we have a beloved friend who, as it says in Psalm 56, 8, puts all of our tears into a bottle. (laughs) He bottles up all of our tears. That's how intense his care is for you. You may feel forgotten, but he is not even letting a tear fall to the ground that you have shed. This is how closely your Savior is to you. And yet he even gives you a greater promise that there is coming a day when he is going to wipe all those tears away. And there shall be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more grieving. It will all be at an end. But here and now, in this moment... Grieve, mourn, 
struggle. Because you can do so with hope. You can do so with the assurance that you have a savior, a redeemer who is your voice, who is your volunteer, who is your victory. And though it may be an extended season and you may not know when that other side is coming. Jesus is there. He is always there and he will never leave you. Let us pray.